welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxe. Today's show takes us to the Atlantic Ocean, but not very deep or very far out, because we're talking about right whales, the gentle, surface-skimming, and very endangered creatures bobbing along right off the coast of Maine and Atlantic Canada. The region's whaling past and ongoing commercial activity at sea have made right whales critically endangered. But governments, NGOs, and conservation groups have taken strides to protect them. This task would be much more difficult without the work of scientists at places like the Davies Lab at the University of New Brunswick St. John. I got to speak with one of them, Gino Lenati, who kindly agreed to satisfy my curiosity in all things right whale. Lenati also shared ways that everyone can do their part to help the right whales. Don't flip out, because the show starts now. Let's do this. My guest today is Gina Lenati, PhD student at the University of New Brunswick, St. John in the Department of Biological Sciences. Lenati is a marine mammal biologist and drone pilot at the Davies Lab, a leader in right whale research in Canada. Gina, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you so much. Could you please describe the physical characteristics of the North Atlantic right whale for our listeners who might be not remembering what these creatures look like? Certainly, yes. So they're quite big whales. Um, They are considered baleen whales, meaning they don't have teeth. They filter feed small plankton out of the water, almost like a spaghetti strainer. They are mostly black. Some of them have little white patches on their bellies. They are about 40 feet in length. Sometimes they can get up to 60 feet, the big adults. And they weigh about 300,000 pounds. Just look that up. Um, Really? 300,000 pounds? That's what I was just looking. Yes. 300,000 pounds. Yes. 135,000 kilograms. Case metrically inclined. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, and uh, what is really unique about right whales relative to other large baleen whales is that they have this thickened, keratinized, uh, roughened patch of skin on their heads and around their eyes and around their jaw. And those are called callosities. And they're often like white or cream colored. And uh, each individual North Atlantic right whale has a different pattern of callosities. And they actually, researchers use those patterns to identify the individual whales through photographs. So those uh, callosities are often colonized by things called cyamids, little crustaceans that will kind of create a symbiosis with the whale and eat food as the whales are traveling through the water. And yeah, those uh, again are unique to each individual. So these callosities are the things that look like barnacles that we might see? 
Okay. Yes, they're yes. So they're they're not barnacles. They're actually the, t the whale's tissue constitutes oh. the the callosity. But like I said, there are little tiny crustaceans that live inside the callosities. But yes, it's it's keratinized tissue that grows on the heads of these whales. Okay, and if I am fortunate enough to be in a boat and see a right whale, so besides the callosities, are there other revealing characteristics that might let me know this is a right whale and not like a humpback or some other more common and clearly less interesting whale? Sure, sure. No bias there, right? No, none at uh, all. None at all. <laughs> so North Atlantic right whales, when they come up to, to the surface, so whales like humans breathe air. Uh, when they come to the surface, their blow or uh, exhaled vapor takes on a V-shaped and they have two blowholes, just like we have two nostrils. A lot of like dolphins and smaller whales have just one, but right whales and, and all other baleen whales have two. And just the angle of their blowholes causes that V-shaped blow relative to other whales. Humpbacks uh, can kind of look like a V, uh, a little bushier, and some other whales will have more of a column of blow, but right whales are pretty distinguished by that V-shaped blow. Okay, so look for the V and look for the don't call them barnacles. Uh, right, and that's yes. The big hint. Also, okay. right whales don't have a dorsal fin, like uh, they don't have a fin on their back. Okay. Uh, a lot like humpback whales have a dorsal ridge, it's like a small projection on their back. But right whale bodies are very smooth and sleek, and they have very broad tails that sometimes come above the water when they're diving. Okay. If they do like, you know, if they are diving and they, they flip their, their back tail up, does it look, so it looks noticeably different than say like a humpback tail or? Yes. It's slightly different shape, very broad. Um, whereas a humpback I think is a little more streamlined. Yes. That's, that's my best description of it. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Where do right whales live? I mean, obviously the ocean, but like, what is their, what is their range? Ideally. Ideally yes. I hope so. I hope so. Um, where in the Atlantic ocean do they range? And also how close to shore do they get? I right. mean, not when they're not doing something dangerous where they get beached or something bad. Right, right. So North Atlantic right whales uh, migrate up and down the East coast of the U.S. and Canada. So they're primarily in the Northwest Atlantic Ocean, although some will take little excursions over to the Eastern Atlantic, Northeastern Atlantic. And they spend pretty much the spring, summer, and early fall looking for food, um, foraging in the Northeast US and Atlantic Canada. So some of the hot spots are Cape Cod Bay in the Gulf of Maine, the Bay of Fundy and the Gulf of St. Lawrence more recently, which we can get into uh, the recent shift in their distribution more northward. But uh, during the late fall and winter, many individuals will migrate south to southeast Florida and they migrate there to give birth to calves. So a lot of the females, but also some males and, and juveniles will migrate there as well. So that's their, ma their main calving ground is in like off of Florida, uh, a little bit of South Carolina, Georgia area. Uh, so they're there in the winter time. Okay. And so do some of the male whales stay up North all year round then? 
Yeah, so we're finding over the years that fewer right whales are undergoing this migration. And we think hmm. this has to do with uh, that they're fasting during these migrations. And so we think uh. that this has to do with the fact that they're not obtaining enough energy to undergo this fasting migration. And so, yes, they're the, uh, the majority of the population, we, we don't, sometimes we don't know exactly where they are in the middle of the year. There are still habitats we probably haven't discovered because even in the summertime, we've only accounted for, you know, most of the population. There's still some of them out there that we don't know where they go. I really like the idea that there's these like secret whale hangouts away, <laughs> right. away from our prying eyes. And I also, I understand them just not wanting to go to Florida. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I used to work in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it's got uh, some good parts there. It does, it does, um, yes. But you also asked about how close to shore they get. Mm-hmm. And so while feeding and during some of these migrations, they're actually, they can be visible from shore with the naked eye or with binoculars. And oftentimes some of our sightings in some of the mid-Atlantic states are from people who just kind of saw a right whale swimming, you know, off the coast. So they certainly come in close enough for people to interact with them, which is, which is probably one of the downfalls of the population is that they are quite a coastal species and yeah, they're not one of these, you know, cross ocean, except those for those individuals that are my, that sometimes make trips to the Eastern Northeastern Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they are. Is this because, is this because most of the plankton that they eat lives along the coast as well? Yes. So the, the, the plankton aggregates due to coastal currents and as well as uh, northern currents and kind of aggregates like the south, southwestern Gulf of St. Lawrence. The Bay of Fundy is, you know, very close to land. And in Cape Cod Bay, they kind of come around the hook of Massachusetts and make their way into the, the bay there. Okay. So, yes, it's the way that the currents converge to aggregate their prey that brings them close to shore for their summer foraging. Gotcha. Okay. How many right whales are there uh, of the of the North Atlantic species? Right. So this is always a challenge. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, researchers have done an excellent job at documenting individuals based on those callosity patterns. So we have a pretty good understanding of every individual whale in the population. And they even are able to identify calves and and track those calves over time. And so the most recent population estimate came out at the end of last year in 2020. And as of the end of 2019, there were estimated to be 356 North Atlantic right whales. Oh, that's so few. So few. yes, yes, it's, it's been on the decline. Their population has been on the decline since the 2010s. And I mean, there, I have some, since this is a history podcast, I have some like uh, trajectory. So historically, the population has likely been um, a small population. And they think Oh, just historically overall. Right. So like back before whaling, there were probably a thousand or 2000 individuals. And then due to whaling, it was thought that by the 1700s, there were maybe only 100 and then probably only a few dozen individuals surviving into the 1900s. 
And so they are quite resilient. And if you think about it, they have rebounded a little mm-hmm. since the, the early 1990s. There was a moratorium on right whale hunting in 1931. And right. so, yes, we have a small increase. But when you compare that to the right whale cousin or the other another member of their genus, the southern right whale, which is in the South Atlantic, as well as the South Pacific, they were also almost extirpated through hunting, but they've bounced back to about a, a like 12,000, 15,000 individuals. So oh, okay. it just kind of highlights the fact that North Atlantic right whales due to exposure to anthropogenic impacts such as fishing and and vessel collisions just shows how much that's impacted the recovery versus the southern right whale which doesn't have as much of those pressures getting to to whaling for a, a moment so whaling was the the major cause of their decline several hundred years ago what made the north atlantic right whale such a popular target for bosque whalers and then other other whalers. Right. So North Atlantic right whales, as we mentioned, they are coastal, so pretty easy to access and easy to find. They also have that very distinctive V-shaped blow and probably the biggest advantage to hunting a right whale, if you're looking for an advantage to hunting a right whale, is that they are have a lot of blubber and tend to float after they are killed, making mm-hmm. it easier to harvest the whale and, and cut the meat and, and bring it to shore. So also because they have so much blubber, they were great for oil and, and as well as their meat and yeah, unfortunately, they earned the name right whale because they were the right whale to kill, the, the one that was most convenient. Right. I've always wondered, was there anything about their behavioral patterns that made them also in, enticing targets for whalers? Like, you know, I don't know if they're, they're more easygoing because, you know, you read sometimes about like Moby Dick, right? Where the, the <laughs> whalers are going after sperm whales and they fought back. And there are various cases where whales got upset and defensive and, you know, rammed whaling ships or, you know, attacked the boats. Did you read, there was something lately about sperm whales that had been finding ways to commu- they communicate with each other and they would warn one another that whalers were in the area and they would all leave. Hmm. I did not see that. I also have never witnessed a whale come out of nowhere and attack a ship. Um, (laughs) Although I like (laughs) good for them if they can coordinate that. Right. But um, right whales, they're generally slow moving. And especially in the Cape Cod Bay area, when they're feeding, their prey tends to aggregate in shallow water. So they're spending Mm. a lot of time at the surface. So it's much easier to track them and and follow them and then hunt them down. So in terms of aggression in whales, I mean, all whales will kind of fight a little if you like during disentanglement efforts, I've Mm. seen whales, you know, buck and, and arch and, and slap their tails and they're a lot stronger than you might think i mean usually you just see them swimming slowly but when a whale is uh, aggravated or disturbed they can move pretty quickly and and uh, do some damage with their tails 
Since the hunting ban in the 1930s, what are the other major innovations that have occurred in whale conservation efforts, be it technology or major sort of landmark agreements that have allowed the, the international and the scientific community to do the work of conservation? Right. So there are arguably dozens of important inventions in terms of technology and agreements. I'd say one of the big ones was- Well, you're the expert, so you can play favorite. According to you. Right. Well, I do think the, in the United States, the Marine Mammal Protection Act in 1972 was very important for establishing a program to study and monitor and protect marine mammals. I think that was a big step toward a lot of marine mammal populations recovering or, or being studied in more depth because we honestly didn't know how many individuals were out there for different species. In terms okay. of North Atlantic right whales, I know aerial surveys using planes to count whales and different technologies in terms of cameras and being able to observe the animals and individually identify them. I think those kind of advances have been really important and uh, leading to today's world, the invention of uh, unoccupied aerial vehicles or drones has been another step toward understanding these whales and other marine mammals in more detail. And that kind of leads into the research that I'm hoping to accomplish for my PhD. Great. Getting into your role in the, in the Davies lab, first of all, what got you into the right whale monitoring business. Why did you choose right whales? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I've kind of bounced around between studying different marine mammal species and of the seals, polar bears, manatees, and whales. I'd say whales are my favorite, but don't tell those other species. Of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was, I knew that I wanted to return to school and uh, I knew that I enjoyed studying marine mammals. I just find them so fascinating how they're adapted so well for their underwater lives. And they're basically working with the same parts you and I are. They have lungs, they have stomachs, kidneys, etc. And yet they're able to dive, hold their breath for really long periods of time, go through really crazy changes in pressure that occur with depth in temperature and range over these vast distances. And I think that's just really, really cool about marine mammals in general. What drew me to North Atlantic right whales was I attended a conference in Halifax, Nova Scotia in 2017. It was the Society of Marine Mammology's biennial conference. And 2017 happened to be tragically an awful year for North Atlantic right whales. And there were several people at that conference who gave very moving presentations about how dire the situation was for the species. And I was just captured by those presentations and remember thinking, you know, what better way to dedicate my future research as a student than to contribute to this cause seemed a disservice to to pull my attention elsewhere. And and so I started looking for opportunities to get involved with the right whales. And here I am in my second year of my PhD in the Davies Lab and really enjoying being a part of this right whale family. So it was sympathy for the plight of the right whale rather than the, the sort of force of its personality or coolness that... 
Well, I, I certainly think right whales are cool. You, North Atlantic right whales, I think, is right now my focus because I think there's a lot of opportunity to make a difference with a species. And that's where I'd like to focus my attention for my yeah. research now. That's great. Mm-hmm. I always thought growing up when I was interested in, in sea creatures and then uh, did projects in school, the right whale, it was just sort of, it was overlooked because it wasn't glamorous because it was such right. a, a slow, easygoing, <laughs> seemingly I anthropomorphized it as a, you know, a very friendly, easygoing creature <laughs> right. uh, that nobody paid much attention to. I think that really what they need is Rafi has that song, Baby Beluga. There needs to be <laughs> a hit song about the right whale in mm, order yes. to, to really draw attention because belugas are not nearly as endangered as right whales. There's nothing wrong with belugas. <laughs> right. Um, but um, yeah. yes, I, they aren't. And please cover all the right whale ears right now. They're <laughs> not the prettiest whale. Um, you know, they very rarely will breach or come out of the water. So, you mm. know, humpback whales will do those spectacular breaches. And so people get them photographed from whale watch tours and right whales don't. Also, oh, breach is the formal that. term for when they jump out of the water. And yes. Fly- yes. Okay. For yes, our... For the, for like me, the unsophisticated <laughs> members of the audience. Yes. So, yes. So breaching. right whales, is it, do right whales, are they unable to breach or do they just not feel like it? Cause they don't need to show off. Um, they, they are capable. There oh, okay. have been records of right whales breaching. I just, I, I know that some whales, they use it as forms of communication. Like I'm mm. over here. Uh, I don't know if right whales do that. Uh, sometimes I know dolphins and smaller whales will do it because they have something like an itch on their back. Sometimes um, yeah. it can also be like an aggressive territorial display as, as well as slapping their tail on the water. But uh, yeah, right whales, I guess, are a little less showy. <laughs> okay, that's right. Not flashy, making a scene. Right, just... <laughs> right. <laughs> Going about their business, participating right. in the ecosystem that is right. the North Atlantic. <laughs> Yes, yes. Okay. The Davies Lab plays a major role in monitoring the right whales and actually keeping tabs on all these creatures for conservation. You're a drone pilot for the Davies Lab. And so how do you go about finding right whales? Is this like mostly there's a camera on there and you just sort of go, okay, great, that's one. Or is there more sophisticated technology at work here? Actually, we don't use our drone to find whales, mostly because our drone has limited battery capacity. We fly, it's called a quadcopter drone. It has four propellers and the battery life on our drone is on a good day, 30 minutes, but functionally I'd say 17 to 20 minutes. So usually that's not enough time to span a large expanse of ocean and look for whales. So instead, uh, when we're out doing field work, we usually have a visual observer up high on the deck of the boat and they will scan the horizon looking for the blow of the whale or the tails or the backs coming out of the water. 
But when we're planning field work, there, there are actually several different technologies that are much more efficient at finding whales than our research drone. So the first example is aerial surveys. I mentioned people flying in planes and they're able to cover much more of a distance than our drone could and stay up in the air longer. And so they kind of do these transect patterns across areas where right whales are most common and look for the whales and they're equipped with various cameras and detection platforms to look for whales from the sky. Then another evolving technology is using underwater acoustics. So right whales make sounds, uh, not all the time, but certainly enough for us to be able to detect them in some of these common habitats. And these acoustic platforms, they're called hydrophones, basically underwater microphones. And they can be moored to buoys and be stuck in one spot and, you know, listen to the ocean for long periods of time. And recently, the, the Davies Lab has been putting hydrophones on oceanographic gliders. So these are like little underwater planes that are autonomous, so no one's inside them. And they can be programmed to do transects of large expanses of ocean and listen for whales all during that transect. And when they come to the surface, they transmit data to satellite and you can kind of get this near real time detections of right whales by analyzing the hydrophones recordings. So, so that you identify is, each whale by the sounds it makes? So each species has uh, slightly different intonations, I suppose. Okay. And so you, it's we haven't yet figured out how to identify individual whales from their calls. I don't know if that's possible, but, oh, okay. um, or maybe, maybe that's a research avenue someone's exploring, but certainly right whales have uh, species specific sounds that an acoustician will listen to the recordings and verify, yes, that's a right whale or no, that's a blue whale or that's a minky whale. And they can kind of tell based on the frequency of the sound and the kind of, like I said, the intonation. Okay. Well, now I'm going to have to ask you what they sound like. Uh, so feeling. <laughs> yes. So my, I did not look this up, although I did hear a new, a rare recording of whatever their, one of their sort of clicky sonar things that sounds like, you know, a gun or something. Right. Um, yes. It's but called I know a gunshot that, actually. Oh, and is this something they use to find each other or, you know, a rock so they don't hit it or. Um, right. So, so right. So baleen, baleen whale calls are different than dolphins and other toothed whales. So dolphins and toothed whales have kind of a biosonar system where they use echolocation to okay. navigate underwater. We don't believe that baleen whales have the same capability. So instead, they're probably using their calls to communicate with one another, although we know still so little about why, when, how they call. There's some really cool research coming out of Dalhousie University. Hanson Johnson and Kim Franklin are working on understanding how the different sounds of, of right whales correspond to their behavior. So whether they make certain calls when they travel versus when they're socializing versus when they're feeding. 
And so I think that kind of stuff will be really important um, and give you kind of as these acoustic platforms are navigating through the ocean, understanding what the whales are doing would be really neat through their sounds. Oh, okay. So besides the gunshots, though, they have like regular calls. Right. So so the gunshots, yeah, they kind of it's like a yeah like a clap or like loud yeah pretty much a gunshot and then they have up calls so it's like a it's like a up up calls they kind of sweep up and then there are also tonals which are kind of short little like i'm probably not doing it justice but again a lot of research out of dalhousie is is looking into these uh different calls and and also whether right whales are capable of producing song or um, like humpback whales are so famous for. I'm surprised that they, uh, I was thinking about this and, you know, in my mind, right whales were, I mean, because they're so big. So I thought not quite a foghorn, but sort of like I was thinking it would be much more like deep, you know? Uh, Maybe it's just my, you know, female voice not able to go that deep. They are probably deeper than I'm able to uh, achieve. Oh, I'm in in no way challenging you. I'm just in the interest (laughs) of disclosure since you were making whale sounds. I didn't want to leave you hanging. Um, (laughs) But then, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe they're just large things with high pitched voices. Again, there's the the tendency to anthropomorphize. Right. uh, There are, there are lots of uh, recordings of right whales online if you are so inclined to check it out and they're quite soothing like a great way to kind of fall asleep at night or you know meditate so um it is really neat to to wonder what they're trying to express or or say (laughs) okay now do you uh staying on the 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 species differentiation Mm -hmm. uh i know that like clearly there can be sort of personality differences within species as well. Would you say that there is sort of a different personality that say right whales have uh, as opposed to say humpbacks or some of their other whale uh, colleagues, associates (laughs) on the Atlantic coast? Sure. Well, when I think of a right whale, I think of just like kind of slow and dignified in a way, Mm. also resilient. I mean, these animals have been subjected to awful injuries and entanglements. And I think it's amazing to see some of them, what they can survive. Humpback whales, I think of as, like I said, a little showy. They like to kind of jump and play and and socialize. And they have these beautiful songs. So also like a a majestic aura to them, I guess. And then you have blue whales, which are just impressive. They're just the largest animal ever known to occupy the planet and seeing them is really unique because they kind of shimmer and that's how like they get that blue whale the the blue part of it it's like yeah it's incredible so do these different species really interact or do they just sort of you know swim on by and ignore each other and do their thing yeah you know i uh, they occupy a lot of the same habitats i mean um Right whales feed on copepods, so do a lot of other marine species. Um, Is this whales. the scientific name for plankton and very small things? Oh, yes, yes. Sorry. No, so, this yes. is just right. so that people know what we're talking about. Thank you. Yes, right whales feed on these little tiny rice-sized grain plankton called copepods. Whereas um, humpback whales feed on krill and some fish like herring. Blue whales are also feeding on krill. So I imagine they pass each other, but Mm. I don't know how much interspecies interaction there is. 
but I do know that oftentimes dolphins are seen swimming around with whales. I've seen some cool mm. drone footage of, of those kind of interactions. Nice. Now I'm just going to think of like right whales swimming by humpbacks and being like, ha, show offs. <laughs> right. <sort> of like- <laughs> oh, I don't want you to think they're like stuck up though. <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. And in fact, I, I'll admit, I have never seen a right whale myself. I don't it, know if I mentioned that earlier. You did, oh, like with your with your own eyes. My wow. own eyes. Right. I was on a boat once and someone was like, oh, look, a right whale. And I turned and there was just like a little splash and it was gone. Oh. And so that's why I am especially as excited for the summer to go out on the boat and see a right whale for the first time. And then maybe I can give you an update on their personality once I see one firsthand. Are right whales playful or friendly when they see boats that they know are, you know, not out to get them in the way that dolphins are? I wouldn't say friendly. Um, And I know they can be disturbed by vessels, especially close approaches. Researchers, when they're trying to get close to a whale to collect a biological sample or get photographs, sometimes they swim away. But I think it depends on the individual whale, just as there are some bold people, there are bolder whales that will kind of allow you to get closer or kind of maybe approach the boat. But dolphins tend, I think, tend to beg and they associate, since people feed them, I think they tend to um, approach boats for food, but also curiosity. I I don't think right whales really or I don't know how curious a right whale is. I just know that they can be slow moving. And so sometimes it's hard for them to get out of the way of a fast moving vessel or get disentangled from underwater gear. Okay. Oh, makes sense. So the Davies lab is collecting this right whale data. Clearly this, this information goes towards, you know, it's, it's uh, vital to any kind of conservation efforts. So what do conservationists use uh, information you collect for? Like, what can we, what can we get out of this? Right. So especially in Canada, there's a big push to know where whales are and when they're there. So our data are contributing to those efforts. And there's a big, so the North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium, which is managed out of, they house all the data for North Atlantic right whales. It's a joint country effort to contribute to this consortium. So uh, New England Aquarium is one of the big contributors and and Mm. kind of curators of this consortium. And also the University of Rhode Island. And we kind of all contribute our data to this consortium so that anyone working on a research project has easier access to broad geographic scale of data. So certainly any sightings that we make of right whales are contributed to this consortium, as well as the North Atlantic right whale catalog to for the purposes of photo identifying whales. And then also there is this website called Whale Map, and you can search it and anyone can look at it where you can see where North Atlantic right whales have been sighted. You can kind of see the distribution and how right whale sightings have been changing over time. But as I said, the Canadian government has been investing a lot into better management of North Atlantic right whales, especially after there were so many mortalities in Canadian waters in 2017. So our data are contributing to a better understanding of the 
prey. And, and so, as I mentioned, right whales feed on these small plankton and these small plankton aren't in the Gulf of St. Lawrence or the Bay of Fundy or Atlantic Canadian waters year round, kind of currents sweep them in and aggregate them. And we're trying to understand when and where these plankton exist and how that aligns with the timing of right whales so that maybe in the future, if we detect a lot of copepod plankton in a different area of Atlantic Canada, we can say, well, maybe this is where the whales will venture next. So understanding the distribution of these whales is going to be very important moving forward. What are the major threats that right whales face today? Is there like a potential plankton shortage from climate change or pollution? Or is this more from direct negative interactions with fishing vessels and other other man-made problems? Right. So the unique situation with right whales is that we actually have a pretty good understanding of the stresses that they undergo. So we know that vessel strikes kill and injure right whales very often. We know that whales are often getting entangled in fishing gear. And we know that their prey is being affected by climate change. So it's a combination of all these things that has led to a decrease in the overall health of the population and thereby a decrease in the reproduction of the species. And so that has led to pretty drastic population declines in the past decade. So in terms of the biggest threats, would you say that uh, the most important thing is for people to like give them some peace and quiet so they can breed and court and have whale relations in peace (laughs) so there can be more whales? Or is this an issue of uh, we need a, a drastic change in fishing so they don't get stuck in the nets? Right. So it's, it's going to be a team effort. I think both of the things you mentioned are important. Right now, the big push is to work with the fishing industry and with the shipping industry to, to compromise. I mean, I don't think it'll be possible to cease fishing or cease shipping that mm-hmm. we rely on those so heavily. But it, um, one of the really cool avenues of research right now is ropeless fishing gear. And it's been really incredible to see some fishermen uh, participating in the research. A lot of our research actually in the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the Bay of Fundy is by using chartered fishing vessels. So fishing captain, uh, fishermen uh, captain the vessels that we use to go out and do this research. And it's really great that they're getting involved and have the same goals that the conservationists do. Okay. And so, yes, this ropeless fishing gear is is quite interesting and, and very important. It's basically uh, instead of having line in the water that whales, you know, they travel and they hit it and they tend to spin and it gets wrapped up in their flippers, in their mouth, around their tails. And it's quite tragic to see how an entanglement can prevent them from feeding. And it's just this long, really drawn out, agonizing death. And, and then shipping, of course, is maybe a quicker death, but still, you know, these animals are, are being hit by boats and having sublethal effects. So the, the ropeless gear, the idea there is that we could remove the line from the water column and have these like buoys that inflate so fishermen can retrieve their, their um, traps 
and just get the lines out of the water so that there's no line to be encountered by the whales to begin with. And so I think that's really where the future lies. Um, I think in, in Canada, we there's a lot of adaptive management and dynamic management. So as whales are detected, fishery grid cells are closed. So a fisherman can't fish where the whales were recently seen. When a whale is detected in a shipping lane, there are slow speed regulations that are implemented. So I think it's it's a team effort. It's the scientists working with the industry, working with the people who are, you know, making the policies. And yeah, it's 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 gonna take everyone. And I think the more awareness that the public has of what's going into right whale conservation, the better. In Maine, besides fishing, lobstering is a huge industry tied not only to the economy, but the, the, the identity of, of real parts of the mid coast and, and down east, uh, especially in rural areas. And the lobstering industry is working to adopt as well. There's concerns about ropeless technology for lobster traps. Some lobstermen are not working in areas where they endanger whales, but there's all kinds of, of concerns and disputes going on about you know, reconciling these, these competing goods. So thinking about this, pulling back on the, on the bigger picture, what would you recommend to people concerned with ethically consuming seafood? Of course, there's the question of sustainable catching, but then also being concerned about you know, ethical consumption of seafood so as to not enable whales getting stuck in, in fishing nets, what they might want to look out for. So my first recommendation is to eat local and establishing a relationship with a fisherman and, and asking him or her about the practices they use to catch their lobster or seafood can, you know, make you feel like you're not having a negative impact on whales. I also think doing a little research about the companies from which you purchase your seafood never hurts. And just in general, eating things in moderation, I think takes the pressure off any one resource. And, but also these fishermen have lives and and livelihoods that have been passed on from generation to generation. So just completely banning a, an industry is also not the solution. Fair enough. Fair enough. So this whole shopping local, sorry, audience members who live in Nebraska, uh, but this answer is not going to work for you. (laughs) Right. Yes. (laughs) So thinking uh, also along similar lines to, you know, what audience members can do, maybe you're not going to go ahead and endorse specific legislation uh, out of the gate, but is there other ways that non-scientists who want to make a difference in uh, especially right whale conservation? Are there particular areas that they can send their donations or their time? So the first thing I recommend to anyone who says they want to help right whales is to educate yourself and then to educate others. And I'd say a great place to start is the North Atlantic Right Whale Consortium. They send out a newsletter periodically and you can sign up for their listserv and uh, understand some of the legislation that's being 
uh, reviewed. You can look at the science that's happening. And uh, it's a great way to get these updates and, and learn about how you can provide feedback on some of that legislation sometimes. And in addition, there are places to donate. I think donating to research organizations is a great way to support positive impacts on the whales. One of my favorites that I would recommend would be the Canadian Whale Institute, which uh, not only does amazing cutting edge research on right whales, but also has the Campobello whale rescue team. So they're the ones physically out there on a boat trying to disentangle whales and responding to distressed live animals or dead animals. So they do some really great work and I would recommend you read about them and donate to them. In addition, I think it's great for people to be aware of what to do if they ever encounter a whale. If you're on a vessel and, and you see a whale, and, and that includes like a kayak or a pleasure craft or, you know, you're, you're just floating around in the water. There is a law in the United States that you have to stay at least 500 yards away. So if you find yourself closer, you have to make every effort to, you know, distance yourself. And this is the best way to let the animals do their natural thing and not be disturbed. In addition, I, I recommend you download the whale alert app. And this is where you can report right whale sightings if you think you see a whale. This fuels a lot of the conservation. So it contributes to data sets on the distribution of the whales. And also, uh, if you do see a whale that's either in distress, that's entangled or dead, or if you just, you know, feel like you need to report it, there is a hotline that covers the coast from Virginia to Maine. It's run through uh, the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and that number is 866-755-6622. And I recommend everyone just put that in your phone because you never know when you're going to be walking along a beach and you see a stranded animal and you don't know who to call and you Google it or you have no service. Uh, so good to have that phone number again, 866 755 6622. Great, thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't know. I'm going to download this uh this right <laughs> Yeah, whale the whale app. alert app is Yes, I need a I need a whale alert on my phone. <laughs> Excellent. Now, is there also I suppose cuz we're not supposed to get near them, so it's not there's not a way to be like there's an alert where like alert, alert, there's a whale in your area if you want to go look at it. I don't it know if that way. app is equipped for that. <laughs> I don't think that would be like <laughs> defeat the purpose maybe. But like I said, there is whale map, which the website is whalemap.ocean.dal.ca. And you can go on there and, and it's updated routinely. Like when there's a sighting, I'd say within 24 hours, it's posted on there. So you can look at the distribution of right whales seen by planes, by vessels, by citizens, by other researchers. And so that's a great way to see if there are whales in your area. Great. Mm -hmm. Wrapping up here. What is something that you are working on that our audience should be aware of that's going to be coming out in the near future? Awesome. I could, I could give you a whole podcast full of the things that I'm working on because I'm so excited about them. But anyway, as a right whale researcher and a drone pilot, I am using a drone to study the health of North Atlantic right whales, individual whales. And so we fly the drone over the whales and the drone carries two cameras. 
One camera is a visible spectrum or RGB camera that gets these full body, high resolution overhead photographs of the whales. And by knowing the altitude of the drone, we can actually get very precise measurements of the length and the width of the whale. And so by having those measurements, we can tell how skinny or fat a whale is relative to its counterparts. So we can get information about body condition. Then the other camera on the drone is a thermal imaging camera. And so it's detecting infrared radiation from the whale. And we're actually interested particularly in getting images of the whale's blowholes when they're open, similar to the contactless thermometers that we're all using to detect fevers for COVID. We're curious if we can detect a fever in a whale or, or what even what is the temperature of the blowholes of whales. And so by combining these two new technologies from a drone, we're getting these really cool new perspectives of right whale health that will hopefully give us a better idea of how capable individual whales are of reproducing, surviving. If they do get entangled, you know, will they be able to survive? And so I think these, I'm, I'm very hopeful that these new metrics of health will be used to gauge the responses of whales to management efforts. And I'm hoping to publish this work as scientific research articles. Great, that sounds interesting. Thanks. So by the time you're done, so a lot of this sounds like you're kind of measuring their stress too. Right. The health of an animal is kind of an accumulation of the stressors. So obviously a, a very stressed whale will eat, like uh, metabolize its blubber faster. And so, yes, we'll be able to see how healthy the whales are in the Gulf of St. Lawrence versus the Bay of Fundy and maybe compare the images we get with those obtained by colleagues in Florida to see how they compare to the whales that are giving birth to calves. So it's, uh, it's a lot of teamwork and it's exciting to, to think of the possibilities that we can achieve through drone research. Yeah, absolutely. Final question. What is something that somebody else is working on that you right. would recommend? Yes. So I've had the privilege of working very closely with a very renowned researcher, Dr. Michael Moore at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And he just published a book called We Are All Whalers, The Plight of Whales and Our Responsibility. And it's in preprint right now, but you can pre-order the book. It comes out in October through the University of Chicago Press. And he reviews a lot of the work that he's done, um, a lot of the whales that he's treated, he's also a veterinarian. And so he's done a lot of the dissections of dead whales and, and seen firsthand how our actions are impacting these whales through entanglements and ship strikes. And so I really recommend that book because I think it gives a nice perspective of, you know, how we're all responsible for what's happen happening to the whales, but also it ends on an optimistic note about you know, what we can do and, and that there's still hope if we continue to care about the whales. I like to think, I mean, whale sounds are so soothing. You know, some <laughs> people have those like oceanscapes to listen to. It would be nice. I know it's not true if like listening to people could calm the whales. You know, like if, <laughs> if a boat, it. if a boat could sort of beam it in there, you know, where it's just people being like, it's okay. We'll take Relax. care of you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we got this, whales. We'll stop ramming right. you with our ships. 
right. just chill out. It's okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I, you know, there's a lot of work going. I, I, I'm thinking about this now from a scientific perspective. This is, you know, I'm like, but wait, there are different frequencies of sound. So I don't even know if they would be able to pick up on the frequencies of human voices. Probably not very well. Oh, but, well, and especially underwater. Oh, man, I know. I have so many wonderful, yet uh, completely non-feasible, completely scientifically ridiculous uh, Well, ideas. you know, I, I think that's another thing I wanted to bring up is that we need new perspectives when it comes to the conservation of whales. I mean, we've known what is harming the whales for decades now, and they're still declining. And so it takes people like you who are like, let's try this, or what about this? And being persistent and, you know, sharing those ideas with the scientific community, because sometimes, you know, we hit a wall and it takes this creative, imaginative new idea where someone goes, hmm, that just might work. So yeah, keep them, keep them coming. <laughs> well, my idea that I feel strongest about is because they need to procreate, we need to find ways to put the whales in the mood. And so whether that is through music, environment, ambiance, whatever it is, you know, get these whales feeling good again uh, right. so that the number of calves can, can increase. Right. Um, well, Yes. Once, if you find the right track, the, <laughs> you let me know and we'll play it. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll do yes. my best. Gina, thanks so much for stopping by. Hopefully we will speak with you again soon. That'd be great. Thank you so much for your time and for your interest in the whales. I, I think they really need it. And uh, I'm glad that you're uh, educating your audience about them. Oh God, it's terrifying to think that the whales need me. Uh, well, they need everyone. Everyone's they, got it. Everybody <laughs> Just needs... like we need all the whales. All the whales need us. That's right. That's right. All the whales need all of us. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. That's our show. Our dedicated fan base, which clings to us like barnacles on a majestic right whale, continues to grow. Join them by subscribing to this podcast. Keep up with books and other sites mentioned on this and other episodes by following us with all the dedication of Captain Ahab on Facebook or on Twitter at Mainly History. Help more people find us by leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. As we approach the one-year anniversary of Mainly History, we've got a great lineup ahead. It includes John Adams's experience as a lawyer traveling in Maine and the surprising story of the candidate who inspired the song, Charlie and the MTA. We'll also look at the influence of the prolific Portland-based author, John Neal, who helped shape the image of the Yankee in American literature and the use of more vernacular language in fiction, including some much-loved profanities. All of that is just over the horizon on Mainly History. 